Hey, Jane. Hey, Mac. Did you hear that Bianca Smith has been hired as the first black woman coach in professional baseball? I have. So what do you think? I'm thinking a lot of things. I'm celebrating it, mm. but I'm also maybe thinking about how this feels a little bit late. Yeah. I think it's crazy that X number of countless years since Jackie Robinson's integration of baseball, we're still asking minority representatives to kind of represent these entire populations of coaches, whether you have Becky Hammond or Kim Ng and with the Marlins or Bianca Smith. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to be celebrated. I'm happy that something like this is happening in my lifetime as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. We still have so many firsts that we're seeing and it's been too long that these firsts have been occurring. There's too much time in between each of them. Mm-hmm. And there's a pressure that these firsts like need to perform. I imagine that if Kimming doesn't do a good job, you know, putting together a good team in the Miami Marlins, we might need to wait X number of years further for the next woman to be hired as a general manager in baseball. Yes, it's difficult to think about how much pressure is on these women in the sports industry and also people of color in general. But especially women, just because they are a particularly underrepresented population, especially women of color, it feels really daunting. It's hard to celebrate these things because you know what types of trials they had to face in order to get to those positions, in addition to the trials that they're going to have to face in those positions. Mm -hmm. And it often feels like baseball, professional baseball, lags behind society in these types of ways even further, especially when you have a league that's owned and proprieted largely by rich white men. Yes, I agree. Um, You know, part of it could be that baseball is considered America's pastime, Mm -hmm. you know, favorite pastime. And there's something kind of weird about that and in other ways inherently racist about that, right? And the reason why I say that is because the MLB, for example, only recognized the Negro Leagues as part of the major leagues less than... What, like two weeks ago? Something like that. And it feels that awful. That also feels awfully late, doesn't Mm. it? In the grand scheme of things, especially given that baseball is one of the oldest forms of professional sport that we have here in the United States. Yeah, the founding of Major League Baseball is so distinctly rooted in this period of very deep segregation and white supremacy in American history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I wish best of luck to Bianca Smith and Kim Ng and all the women out there looking to get in baseball. (laughs) We're Mac and Jane, and we're here just spitballing. Spitballing. Mac and I want to talk about international affairs, actually, and globalization. Sports oftentimes serves as a vehicle to conceptualize politics, mm-hmm. social issues, international affairs, which is what we're going to dwell on today, among other things in our world. Right, Mac? Yeah. I mean, as two buddies just spitballing about sports, something we were really <laughs> interested in looking into was how we can use sports to understand the power structures that have resulted from globalization and kind of taking individual case studies here to think about how sports connects the world in intensely political and economic ways. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
Right now, I think you and I are very well aware that we are living in a particularly tense time Mm -hmm. in the United States. And there's a number of reasons for that. There's a lot of domestic issues that people are confronting for, in a lot of ways, the first time ever. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of issues on Capitol Hill. I mean, today's January 7th, so it's a bit of a... Yeah, we're fresh off a big one. Yeah, we're fresh off of a big one today. (laughs) But I think one thing that has sort of prevailed throughout the pandemic specifically is a unique focus on U.S. relations with China, or Mm -hmm. more specifically, the CCP. And this awareness doesn't just stem from these vast and unproven conspiracy theories about the Chinese government manufacturing the coronavirus or kind of coming harshly from Donald Trump's xenophobic rhetoric, but from a growing domestic and international understanding of China's human rights violations and also its very tumultuous relationship with Hong Kong, and finally, how the United States is totally tied up in international trade and reliance on China. And I don't think there's any better example of that, Jane, than through sports with the recent situation, the ongoing situation, rather, with NBA and China. So how did we get here, Mac? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the NBA is really unique because of its stake in the Chinese market and Chinese consumers. And it's something that I really struggle with, actually, as an Asian American fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides you and me, Jane, do you know who else really enjoys NBA basketball? Exactly 490 million viewers in China. And in <laughs> comparison, the U.S. population is only 330 million. Mm. So there's more active viewers of the NBA in China than there are overall citizens in the United States. Mm-hmm. And recently, you and I find out found out that the NBA has a $5 billion deal right mm-hmm. with um china and its broadcasting and um we also looked up that that's probably the equivalent to three legacy franchise nba teams <laughs> yeah just imagine the image of that the nba given the amount of money they're able to get out of their business partnership with china they might as well plop two or three los angeles lakers in different parts of the country so i think fans especially u.s fans really underestimate the value and also the reliance the NBA has on Chinese markets. Right. So what does that mean then? You know, what are we going to be thinking about in this conversation? One of the things that we want to be thinking about is the whole debacle with Hong Kong Mm -hmm. and um, Daryl Morey, right? Yeah, for sure. And we want to be thinking about like how the NBA's impact and also its kowtowing to Chinese governments in certain ways explains maybe this moment of potential Cold War tension we have between the U.S. and a growing hegemonic influence and, you know, looking looking to expand into a global superpower that mm-hmm. is the Chinese government. Right. Could you maybe describe the Chinese government so that, or the way that the government sort of works domestically um, so that our listeners can understand why it is so powerful and efficient? Yeah, for sure. Um the power of the state through communism has inherently been twisted and corrupted, I'd be say, and now you have a system in China that is a staunch form of state-controlled capitalism. And it's one party, right? Mm-hmm. So there tends to be no other group of people that really comes against, or even close, to the reigning party over there. Yeah, for sure. And that makes the process of economic and capital extraction very efficient for the Chinese government the way they're able to fully control their workforce and the U.S. products that come into China, like the NBA. Mm -hmm. 
And one example of China utilizing the power of the one-party system is cutting off the NBA broadcasts. After Daryl Morey, the former GM of the Houston Rockets, tweeted in support of Hong Kong protesters who were and still are fighting to remain a cultural and political independent entity from China. I think we have to stop and note how important it was that Morey, out of all 30 NBA teams, that he was a GM of the Houston Rockets, because in many ways you can trace back the popularity of basketball in China, not only to missionaries that adopted the game in China in the 1950s, but the arrival of Yao Ming on the Houston Rockets as the first overall pick, mm-hmm. and kind of Houston Rockets in some ways being adopted as China's basketball team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually... As an Asian American basketball fan, Yao Ming was legendary <laughs> to us. I mean, he was huge. Lin Sanity was probably my most memorable moment. Same Honestly, here. the three like the greatest three weeks of my life. But um, yeah, because you're from the New York area, so <laughs> that makes sense um, why you loved it too. But I think Yao Ming. He was the first time that we had ever been represented in a competitive sport, aside from baseball, probably. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy how these athletes become larger political representatives of entire populations. Just the mere presence of Yao in the paint for the Houston Rockets, blocking shots, going head-to-head to to Shaq. It was almost like he was carrying on his back the entire Chinese population and introducing Chinese people to Western basketball and Western audiences and Mm -hmm. kind of growing the congruence of this relationship, which has since in many ways been twisted and also extracted for mutual economic benefit to both the NBA and the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. Honestly, you really nailed that point just because, again, as an Asian American viewer, we felt like Yao was for us. We felt Mm -hmm. like Yao was for Asian representation within the league, but we were very wrong based on what you were saying. Yao was not for Asian representation. He was for, what was he for? He was for improving relations between the NBA and China, between the US and China, and to make money (laughs) through economic interdependence between the United States and China. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, Yao is a basketball player, but he's his own form of corporate diplomacy between the United States and China and, and the NBA as well. And we kind of see how Yao opened up so many various business interests for a globally-minded NBA commissioner, David Stern, who, following that, you know, sort of paraded NBA players around China in the aftermath of Yao, you know, bringing teams, introducing them to Chinese fans, and sending a clear message in the meantime with players, you know, snapping selfies at the Great Wall that, you know, these there's mutual coalescence between basketball and the X number of million fans that exist in China. Mm-hmm. And... Why does this matter now? What is going on in China that the NBA is grappling with? Hmm, I think it kind of goes back to this idea that, you know, China, whether we like it or not, whether Americans care to admit it to ourselves, is on the rise in search of global hegemonic power. They're using their economic power to, you know, crush their enemies in many ways. And they're poking and prodding at the U.S. in this process. And they poked the NBA in a certain way recently, right? And they came out here and they sent a clear message about Hong Kong to American viewership. Mm-hmm. What was that message? The message was, don't fucking talk about Hong Kong. <laughs> I think that that's actually a really great segue into something that was recently, more recently in the news um, with respect to NBA-China relations, 
which was that the NBA has a training camp facility to churn out Chinese talent to mm-hmm. essentially find the next Yao um, based in Xinjiang, which is the area of China that has concentration camps for Uyghurs, which is an ethnic minority in China who are historically Muslim. Yeah, in many ways, um, kind of the NBA has hid this fact that the, they have these Chinese basketball academies literally on top of land in which a national genocide is occurring. And it just goes to show on one side of the coin how China forces foreign companies operating in China to toe this ideological line in their own homes and also abroad that if you want to do business, if you want to have access to this grand flow of Eastern capital, you need to turn your blind eye to the human rights issues and what Mm -hmm. you're doing. You need to not talk about these things as a corporation. Mm -hmm. So people might be wondering why we care about this, right? Mm -hmm. And we certainly care about this. We are not the only ones. And part of the reason is because right now, this past season, and currently, but especially this past season, the NBA shifted their focus. They said Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. They said players you can put whatever messages whatever political social justice related messages you want on the back of your jerseys players you can speak out players you know whatever and um i think we read that a number of u.s senators actually wrote to the nba and Mm -hmm. said why are you championing social justice initiatives at home when you're actively taking part in or not maybe not taking part in, but being complicit through Mm. your relationship with China and not actively critiquing the human rights violations that are happening over there. Yeah, I think it just goes to show that the NBA doesn't care to be morally conscious, but they're actually morally corporate in this kind of globalized economy where free markets and multinational corporations are able to interact with each other on a global scale. You know, the NBA in some ways has become its own nation state and they've created and crafted their own sets of values that maximize the economic extraction they're able to get out of NBA China and for that states all parts of the world in which basketball is popular. Mm-hmm. I like how you refer to the NBA as a nation state hmm. because it highlights how the NBA has responsibility for what they're doing in Xinjiang, which is they're trying to find talent. Mm-hmm. But a thing that ESPN recently discovered because of um, a few American coaches that were based there in order to work at the training facility, is that specifically Chinese coaches who were also hired to aid in that process are physically abusing their um, their students. And there's now and there um, there was a promise that there would be education provided to those uh, mm-hmm. to those who attended the training facility as well. And apparently, that is also not happening. So there's something that should be said about the NBA sort of separating themselves from this issue. We've heard that they're talking a lot about how there are cultural differences. They say Hmm. the Chinese believe in physical abuse as punishment. Hmm. Well, it's a bit maybe reckless to generalize an entire population of people, um, but it certainly does not sit right with me right it doesn't make a lot of sense that the nba which is putting their resources into this really not ideal area of the country first of all but putting their resources in a country outside of the united states where they're based 
And they're not really making the effort to understand the cultural differences and to anticipate what could possibly happen there. And in addition to not actually even doing anything about it. Yeah, I mean, the NBA is not immune from being a global corporation. And for global corporations, money talks over anything. Mm-hmm. And the benefits of having these training facilities are you know, kind of twofold for the NBA, where one, they're cultivating a larger fan interest in the game abroad. And two, imagine how profitable the next Yao Ming, if they're able to extract that player from China through blood, sweat, and tears, how much money he would be worth as a global entity. It's so funny because when you say something like that, you know, the Asian American <laughs> me gets so excited, yeah. but that's so not the way I want it to happen. Mm-hmm. It feels just awful to think about. Yeah. And at the same time, I think... We're not giving enough credit for how the U.S. pushes their athletes too far in similar ways, too. We have this idea that, you know, hard work through blood, sweat, and years through the Mamba mentality is what makes a great basketball player, sacrificing all for the game. And maybe in China it's taken to an even further extreme than it is to the U.S., but you can see the connection. You can see why there's a mutual love around this game, particularly because it's so individually minded. It's the idea that if you work hard, if you do everything you can as a person, you can cultivate your own success. The American dream has been sold, packaged, and kind of spit out and thrown back from the USA to China, given how we have tied our interests together in this idea of harmonic convergence, the idea that if we open up China under you know the Clintonite trade policies to you know global capital flowing in and out, that they would be exposed to ideas of democracy, their working class would strengthen, um, their standards of living was were improved, and there's so, there would be more of a socially social morality populace if they had Nike and McDonald's in their backyard. You know, capital. The idea that capital is tied into kind of ideas of mm-hmm. you know American, American values, values mm-hmm. is this not frankly true? <laughs> yeah, the NBA also don't you think probably markets itself as the place where you can confidently say if you made it. Mm-hmm. I fulfilled the American dream. I fulfilled the standard of American exceptionalism. And that counts for people who are international players. And it feels really, I I don't even know how to describe it. I just, all I can think about is in the ESPN article that sort of broke the news about the abuses happening at the training facility in Xinjiang. There was this quote from an American coach, um, if I remember correctly, he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, I couldn't possibly, he resigned, um, and he said, I couldn't possibly sit around and watch all of these players Hmm. eventually just become taxi drivers. Hmm. And he was saying that in reference to how education, which was promised, was not being provided, um, but also about just the general strategy and makeup of the facility. over there but i keep thinking about that because when the american dream is marketed to people especially people who are outside of the united states it feels so attainable it feels so within reach i can totally imagine being accepted into this training facility and thinking oh my gosh i'm on my way to making it because they're going to shape me into the player who Mm -hmm. has the skill set who has the iq who has everything they need in order to succeed in the nba and it's a pipeline. I think you mentioned this to me, the word pipeline a lot. 
and the MBA mm. has this pipeline, but it doesn't provide any types of guarantees in reality, even though it pro- has certain promises that it bestows upon the people who become honestly victim to this pipeline. Yeah, that is also a very globalized idea too. That does not just go to American support communities, but also speaks to what is being done, you know, through the MBA's global network of training camps. This packaging of the idea to extract with the least resistance possible the labor and entertainment of the world and in many ways it's working last year all the major winners of the nba's awards were international born players mm-hmm. it was Giannis, right mm-hmm. Luka. Luka. yeah pascal siakam most improves yeah. mm-hmm. we see a lot of spanish internationals as well right mm-hmm. or you even have somebody like um Oh, members of the Ball family, like playing in international leagues, right? Before coming to the NBA, for going college, that's becoming a thing. You know, foreign play is there's a greater emphasis on foreign play these days. Yeah, and in many ways, entertainment rules all. Like, if ideas as us as fans, we may have these moments of clarity where we see kind of these problems happening underneath the surface with what these leagues are doing. But as long as the product on the court is best as possible we're willing to sweep everything else under the rug. There's this idea in sports, I think more opposed to other industries, that you're capable of cutting corners if it means the entertainment value goes up. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Like, what is an... Or can you think of, like, an example of somebody who cut those corners um, to produce increased entertainment value? I think I mean cutting corners by, like, moral corners, you know? Like oh, okay. The time and space that it takes to, you know, have a healthy lifestyle and also, you know, approach or try to, you know, chase an NBA dream at the same time. There's an idea that if you want to be a great basketball player, like, you need to stop everything you're doing and get into the gym right now. Mm, mm-hmm. There's no turning off. There's no relaxing. Work-life balance doesn't apply to basketball <laughs> for some reason. And work-life balance certainly does not apply to China know kind of taking us back to this idea of globalization and global market congruence to make deals with china to be a part of their belt and road initiative you know with the infrastructure they're placing in pakistan or the routes they're building in the maritime pathway to kind of flow trade through the east and through the chinese capital there's this idea that there are no moral bounds to making these contracts if you want to do business with china you have to pay by their rules and you have to turn a blind eye to everything they're they're doing that you might not be a fan of and china has very well pigeonholed the united states into doing that very same thing as shown through the hong kong incident i think we'd all agree that what was the right thing to do was to keep the tweet up daryl moray made a point i think a lot of us agree with free hong kong but the united states and nba learned the hard way that saying free hong kong costs you too much money and when it costs too much money it doesn't matter Mm-hmm. And Adam Silver really showed us that that's what the NBA was prioritizing. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, Adam Silver, he got the easy way out of this too, right? Mm-hmm. He was able to do some corporate maneuvering in similar ways than maybe the NFL was able to maneuver around the Colin Kaepernick situation where there's a moment of acknowledgement. There's a public statement somewhat hollow of free speech and the values of free speech. And then there's drop everything we're doing, let's roll the ball out and play again. Well, at the end of the day, the NBA is a business, Mm -hmm. right? Sports is a business. If it's not making money, then we don't have it. Mm -hmm. The coronavirus made that abundantly clear. I mean, sports were some of the first things that 
came back and established some sense of no- normalcy, yeah. right? We can't open schools, but we can open gyms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or we can't um, allow indoor dining, but we could certainly have a bubble in <laughs> Florida where every NBA team is, or not every, every um, NBA team, but most of them are competing mm-hmm. for a weird league title. I mean, the, like, I get that, you know, Lakers fans are probably you're really happy. You're just trying happy. to take a championship away from Le- LeBron. <laughs> I, know what you're, I know what you're doing here. Well, all I can say is it was a weird season. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was weird for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is, like, Jack Harlow and that NBA player going <laughs> to a strip club yeah. and, like, leaving the bubble. Or it was just a weird year in It general. was just a weird... Yeah, well, I mean, we can talk hours <laughs> about that, but... Um, Part of the reason why it was weird because there was so much civil unrest mm-hmm. while uh, all of this was happening. So we didn't even have a pan just have a pandemic. We had a whole reckoning with civil rights, Black Lives Matter, um, the prioritization of identity and mm-hmm. our um, the American. I guess I can go as far to say as community. Mm-hmm. Um, and the NBA really embodied a lot of what was happening. Yeah. And their business interests, they run twofold. You have kind of the more pernicious side of how business undercuts morals. And then you have the other side of it where business actually promotes profitability, where progressivism promotes profitability. With example, the NBA, I don't doubt that Adam Silver, for some extent, has democratic-leaning politics or you know, probably believes Black Lives Matter. I believe a lot of people in the NBA front offices do believe that to be true. But in many ways, they needed to make those statements. They needed to put Black Lives Matter on the court because if they didn't, the players literally weren't going to play. To make the to salvage what was left of that NBA season, they needed to show that progressivism, and it worked to get the product on the floor, and also worked to advance the product. Fans connected with this idea that the NBA is the most professional, progressive league. But at the same time, this progressivism is derived from the fact that it is a corporation first well i promise i'm not trying to be a lebron hater (laughs) like i really promise also just for reference for everybody listening i was born and raised in chicago i love michael jordan um i was born in 1998 between game four and game five so i feel (laughs) of the uh nba championship so i feel a huge affinity for the bulls especially michael jordan we need to break down this idea in general that if you're an mj fan you have to be a lebron hater no but i disagree (laughs) but anyway i promise when i say this i'm not being a lebron hater but what you're talking about really reminds me of Hmm. uh lebron's reaction which created you know huge waves throughout those who were paying attention to the hong kong debacle and the nba um his comments in response to what happened i don't want to get into a a feud with daryl um with daryl uh but i believe he wasn't educated on 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 the situation at hand and um and he spoke so many people uh could have been harmed um, not only financially but physically emotionally spiritually um so just be careful what we what we tweet and we say and what we do. Yeah, I mean, LeBron, for the most part, kind of hedged and caved maybe more than Daryl Morey did or the league did when he was asked about this, saying that you need to educate yourself before you use your free speech, which is a totally different narrative to what LeBron is kind of saying when it comes to Black Lives Matter issues with his voting campaign. Mm-hmm. In many ways, you know, I think it is very impactful the way he's impacted social justice issues, but 
voting is a very apolitical stance in certain ways. The idea that everyone needs to vote mm-hmm. um, shows activism, but activism only taken to a certain extent. Right, and that's wh- not bipartisan. Yeah, not bipartisan at all. But um, on the other hand, we have, with his China comments, I think the way he responds to both Black Lives Matter and China kind of is demonstrative of how the League navigated these to pursue their corporate interests again. Hedging on China, you know, staying away from the Hong Kong issue, de-emphasizing it, while at the same time upending and re-emphasizing the need for Black Lives Matter serves all of the NBA's business interests in different ways. It Mm. protects their relationship with Chinese consumers, and it expands their social justice comments to socially conscious fans in the United States. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I don't necessarily disagree with LeBron's statement that you should educate yourself before you make any type of, you know, political statements. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I always think it's great to be informed. But the context in which he was using that claim was completely against what he normally stands for, Mm -hmm. especially in relation to domestic affairs, like you said. But... You know, I also want to highlight that one thing that we've sort of noticed in this conversation of NBA China, US CCP, one thing that we've noticed is this lack of effort to actually understand why certain things and certain decisions are being made on both ends, right? Yeah. And this is why I don't blame LeBron, to be honest, because I think he's just as educated about what's going on in China as the vast majority of Americans. There's this Pew Research study saying that Americans, by and large, take a collective more interest in domestic news than we do in international news. And in many ways, we don't perceive China for the kind of global hegemonic threat it is. We do not really pay attention to what they're doing to expand their influence coming out of the Chinese capital. Well, one thing I'll say to that, Mac, is I completely agree. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is something that is actually really not a good thing. Yeah, I think that it really sheds light on this idea that people in the United States share that we are the center of the world. It Mm -hmm. even comes down to the casual using of the word American. Mm -hmm. America refers to Canada, the United States, Mexico, you know, all of Latin America, all of, you know, everybody in this, everybody that shares the word America. It is called the Americas. To be an American is to be a citizen of the Americas, right? It doesn't necessarily mean the United States. So we already have the sort of centralized viewpoint that we all share, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I remember I studied abroad in Chile, which was in the southern cone of South America. Mm -hmm. And I was in a cab, I remember. And the cab driver asked me, (laughs) um, (laughs) where are you from? And I said, I'm from the United States. And I made a joke like, uh, I said something along the lines of, oh, but don't worry, you know, I didn't vote for Trump. This was in 2018. And the cab driver looked at me and then he said, you know, with all due respect, I want to just say that we don't care about that here. Not that, you know, like, obviously, there's a lot of implications if I were to say I did vote for Trump. But he was essentially saying, we just don't care about American politics in Chile. Why would we? Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't really impact us in a lot of ways. And that was a moment where I really realized how to be a better global citizen, which is to just not think that 
we as members of the United or citizens of the United States are at the center of the universe. We simply aren't. <laughs> yeah. And as far as, you know, liberal leaning people kind of tote these cosmopolitan values in many ways, we are very insolent in others. I believe LeBron to be a morally conscious and upright person. He's mm-hmm. just a, you know, a, a person of his environment. He's not expected to know these things about the world. And it's kind of ironic in the way that we create these global pipelines through sports to extract and also sell basketball as a global export Mm -hmm. and we tote these values yet we don't really care to do more and go the full extent of it takes to be a global citizens we're there to you know um conjure up and conquer yeah and you know i agree i don't necessarily expect lebron to be right about everything Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that we're not allowed to be disappointed in him yeah I was really disappointed in him because it really goes to show that like being part of the NBA means you're part of the corporate conglomerate, Mm -hmm. right? It means that you're feeding into whatever system, capitalistic system, they're putting forth and the agenda that they have for the players themselves, especially the iconic players like LeBron. And so it was a little disappointing to see that he really fell victim to that agenda. Um... And, you know, we can talk about whether or not he intended for that to happen. But the fact of the matter is, you know, LeBron, like, if he didn't think he was educated enough to speak on the issue, Mm -hmm. then maybe later he could educate himself. Like, it's really not that difficult because we know he's capable of doing that based on how he's reacted to so many other domestic affairs. If he's selling those jerseys in China, if if the NBA is putting those camps in China, they Mm -hmm. have a responsibility to pay attention. Yeah, and so what that means to me is that he actually doesn't intend on putting in the effort because he mm-hmm. is just as complicit in this scenario the, as everybody else. The effort isn't profitable in many ways. You know, mm-hmm. just how the NBA is its own nation state. LeBron is his own global product. There's this idea that China is a big part of NBA basketball players' brand building. If an NBA basketball player can be immensely popular in the U.S. and they can be immensely popular on the quote-unquote other side of the world, we see China as kind of the antagonistic difference from the united states that if you can conjure up a mass like following take a selfie with a thousand chinese fans on these parading tours during the off season you have transcended from not being just a domestic icon but you know a global product a global icon mm-hmm. right kind of makes me think about alan iverson <laughs> <laughs> just because alan iverson um i'm not sure if how many people know about this but alan iverson is like the biggest global export Mm -hmm. (laughs) in china um and we don't really know why Mm -hmm. like i mean we love alan iverson here at spitballing but um like why is stefan marbury did some of these things just don't make yeah they just don't make why is stefan marbury like the next great chinese basketball hope like out of all players like it's weird the the athletes that china chooses to kind of adopt in this way yeah um, it's really interesting. I feel like maybe one day we can look into that. Mm-hmm. But um, another area of focus that we want to sort of explore is that the NBA is certainly not the only U.S. sports league that has a hand in other um, foreign countries. Yeah, and I think we kind of want to transition here to talking a little bit about Major League Baseball. And in many ways... What the NBA is doing, kind of parading these athletes around China, 
you know, establishing these relations with boots on the ground is very similar to baseball barnstorming in the late 1920s and 1930s, where you have players like Babe Ruth going to Japan and um, kind of selling this idea of American baseball and American exceptionalism and the business of baseball, the fact that he can be a walking profit piece in Japan just by swinging a bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these symbols of those sports honestly do more um i don't want to call it damage but um for lack of a better expression like they do more damage in these countries or no actually sorry they spread the influence of Mm -hmm. these american sports in these countries more than the actual leagues themselves and those and the executives that sort of propel those plans yeah because you can't deny babe Ruth's face in certain ways you know we have language barriers, we have cultural barriers as a society, but sports is highly translatable wherever mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, looking in 2020, or 2021 now, <laughs> as of seven days ago, um, baseball is the biggest sport in both Japan and Korea, mm-hmm. South Korea. You can say that today, maybe America is on the verge of being a declining power, but in many ways how we derive kind of our hegemonic global superiority or the sense of hegemonic global superiority comes in large part for how we've been able to export our culture all over the world. And I think you see that with baseball very prominently. Hmm. It feels a little bit different, though, than the NBA's stake in China. Mm -hmm. Because... I mean, the NBA is doing... So the NBA and MLB are doing the exact same thing. The difference is that the MLB is doing it in so many more places, Mm. I think. But they're both um, trying to find talent in these foreign countries. But it feels a little bit different with the NBA because the NBA is simultaneously super reliant on viewership Mm. in China. Whereas the MLB doesn't necessarily care about viewership in Japan, Korea... The Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Cuba, Mexico, etc. Um, and so it does feel like their priorities might be slightly different. Yeah, I mean, if you look at any kind of polling numbers or viewership numbers of who exactly watches baseball, who watches football, who watches basketball, you see that baseball is a very regional fandom. You see that football is a very national fandom. And you see that National Basketball Association is a very international fandom. So the fact that the NBA actually feels this need because of the way they're split up is kind of this global power of sport to, you know, rely on this viewership while the MLB, they're just creating these pipelines for talent to funnel back into these regional entities that are profitable in very specific cities around the country. You know, that makes me think about, and not to be super tangential with this, but it makes me think about how NBA players are how do i say this they have their own fandoms they have Mm -hmm. their own individual fandoms if you're a lebron fan you do not care what team he's on you know if you're a steph curry fan you don't care what team he's on although i mean he's been on the golden state warriors forever so like i guess you might but um also if you're a steph curry fan or you're a lebron fan you could be in china or you can be in the usa exactly it doesn't matter where you are i myself am a bulls fan but i have no you know, unique affinity for any of the players on the roster right now at this very moment. But I do really like Anthony Davis because he's from Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, my brother 
one time played him in like an <laughs> AAU game, you know, yeah. like it just feels good to have somebody who has that huge Chicago tattoo on their bicep, you know, representing my city. But um, the NBA has all of these sort of independently or not even independently, just independent players, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, Kawhi is a great example of that. Kawhi Leonard, it doesn't matter what team he's on. He's going to bring his fandom to whatever franchise he's at. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with the MLB, you know, there are individuals who stand out among the rest, like Christian Yelich or Mike Trout, right? But there's a reason why we all collectively, if you're not an Astros fan, you hate the Astros, right? Like that wouldn't happen in the NBA. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I love Johnny Damon, but I only loved Johnny Damon when he was a New York Yankee. Oh my gosh, I, okay. <laughs> when he was a Red Sox player, I was like, uh, but when he was a Yankee, <laughs> the regionality of baseball is important, the international viewership of the NBA is important, but I think the commonality here is on kind of the globalization scale of sports is that they're all creating pipelines around the world. They're creating pipelines for talent, they're creating pipelines for extraction, and kind of how you see the NBA looking to find the next Yao Ming in China you see Major League Baseball setting up camp in all these Latin American countries, trying to create a convenient pipeline of least resistant to import foreign Latin-born talent into Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And what about these players is so different from U.S., you know, domestically-born players? They're better, obviously. (laughs) A lot of them are actually better. The culture of baseball is very strong in Latin America and does have a deep history. You kind of have, you know, similar to the way basketball was brought by missionaries um, to China in the late 1950s, you have in the 1860s, almost 100 years before that, college students studying abroad brought the game of baseball to the Caribbean islands. And baseball, you know, expands in popularity from there uh, through the Spanish-American War, actually, through these international relations, these tense international relations between Spanish colonizers and Caribbean nations, where soccer is seen as a very distinctly Spanish sport, but baseball is seen as American. And they are aligning with American interests through the sport. So you see sports becoming very politicized on this international scale. And then in the late 20th century, this is profited off. The politicization of these sports is highly profited off when you have American teams barnstorming across the Caribbean for quick off-season ca- uh, cash. Mm-hmm. You have players like Babe Ruth, again, Lou Gehrig, playing in these summer leagues and touring around these countries. And in the way, exporting the game of baseball, the culture of baseball, the business of baseball into these places. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of focus on how you tied American values to this export mm-hmm. because one thing about baseball that is certainly very unique compared to other sports leagues is its influence in Cuba, Hmm. which essentially has no ties to the United States. Or, you know, occasionally we do, depending on the president. But, um, you know, Cuban baseball players literally have to defect from their country in order to play in the United States. And they have to gain citizenship elsewhere. Yasiel Puig escaped notoriously attempted to escape from cuba or i mean escape isn't even the word just defect you know leave and um he tried over a dozen times i think and then finally made it through a completely 
I mean, people should really look into the story. It's just absolutely insane. But there was like kidnapping involved and ransom and all this stuff. But he eventually made it to Mexico where he gained Mexican citizenship. And that's where a Dodgers training facility was, Hmm. where they recruited Latin American born players. So the MLB really seems to have a unique relationship with certain Latin American countries. And Cuba is certainly one of them. But Cuba is vehemently anti-American mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And it comes down to just the way that their government operates. It also comes down to history. I mean, the U.S., like so many Latin American countries, the U.S. had their hands in the governmental systems that made up Cuba and that eventually Cubans completely rejected. And that's what the Cuban Revolution was. They didn't want an American puppet to be their president yeah so i wonder what that has to say about the american influence through baseball in countries like that i mean i think the american influence through baseball in these countries is pernicious pernicious in the way we've kind of thrown an iron fist on them in a lot of other ways as well i think that kind of shows in how we tell the story of someone like yasiel plig the fact that he was able to flee from this country and become a great la dodger very momentarily like the fact that his story is seen as heroic, but it's also seen as normal. It's, a, it's expected. If you want to be a Major League Baseball player from Cuba, you have to have the story attached from you. Mm-hmm. It feels really sad. Yeah. <laughs> it feels really sad that it takes so much to get to the highest tier of sport mm-hmm. if you're a foreign-born player. And it's sad what you're expected of if you're a foreign-born player. You know, all baseball players are not created equal. Your race, your country does matter when reaching Major League Baseball. You have kind of, when baseball was opened up to these countries, uh, infamous scouts kind of coming in just looking to extract cheap talent. And you have the cheap talent system still operating. All 30 MLB teams have a training camp base in the Dominican Republic. These players, they don't have to go very intentionally. They don't have to go for the draft system. They're quote-unquote discovered and saved and exported to the United States and largely undervalued mm-hmm. in how much they're paid and how they're represented. They're kind of the new model minority for baseball that has roots and you know, being an all-white league. I really want to interrogate one thing that you just said, which was um, that you essentially succeed if you make it Mm -hmm. to the United States. That kind of pressure calls back to what we were talking about the NBA, about these leagues being the best that you can do, and that hard work is the way that you're going to get there. And we totally ignore circumstances. We completely ignore that all of this is reliant on luck, Mm -hmm. um, socioeconomic prosperity in a lot of ways. And again, it's another sort of mythical fantasy world that is around the American dream and American exceptionalism. And that to be exceptional, you have to be in America, Mm -hmm. the United States specifically. mm -hmm. I think kind of for all we do calling the American dream a myth, calling American exceptionalism a myth, it is most actually actualized, I think, through professional sports, maybe outside of soccer, because it is true you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo rising from poverty in Greece, becoming a great NBA player. That's the story we attach to. That's the American dream actually working oh, for someone. Oh, we love that stuff. In a way that we can see actually happening. 
And of course, Americans are going to think that they're exceptional. They're, they're going to think they're the best when the best leagues for all these sports are actually located in America. Mm-hmm. We love that stuff. Mm-hmm. We love that stuff. We love hearing about the first person in the gym. We love hearing about the person who... Oh my gosh, we, you know what? Actually, again, another example of this, Jose Altuve, mm-hmm. he was essentially deemed too short to become a professional baseball player, and now he's a star player on the Astros, and we love a story of resiliency like that. Especially amongst foreign-born players, I mm-hmm. think, in general. And I mean, black athletes too as well, like the idea of LeBron rising from poverty to mm-hmm. become a great NBA player. You know, that's his truth, that his that's his story. But with these foreign-born players, especially these Latin American baseball players, there are all these obstacles that we don't work to kind of alleviate but are seen as the established norm to quote-unquote making it. Mm-hmm. And all of that, including what you mentioned about black athletes, it ultimately is just so belittling, right? It does It, it makes it seem like if you just try and pull yourself up from the, your bootstraps that or by the bootstraps. I don't even, I can't even say the expression correctly <laughs> because I'm so disgusted by it, honestly. But Fair enough. Um, it's, it, it sort of creates this narrative that if you just work hard, you'll make it. When mm-hmm. in fact, there are actual social, economic, political, and racial boundaries that prevent these groups of people from actually doing it. Like it, it really excuses societal discrimination in the process when we dwell on these narratives. Mm-hmm. And through sports, we want to experience the superiority that comes from being a white American society. It's very intentional that the model players are these white-born baseball players, and Latin players are seen as roster fillers, are seen as being dumb, unfocused, and largely replaceable given the extent of this pipeline. And that's their that's their media narrative, right? You have players like. Roberto Clemente kind of breaking through those types of stereotypes, but in large ways, sports writers don't bother to attend col- courses on Latin American culture. They don't bother to learn and respect these players as equals to the white players. And actually, Roberto Clemente essentially sacrificed his life for hmm. that narrative. He was doing service work when he died. And I mean, I'm not saying that like, we shouldn't respect people who do tremendous service work. I'm not saying that at all. But if that's what it took for people to pay attention to these Latin American-born players, then that's really problematic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's always a fight, right, for these players, for their representation, for their changing narratives. It's always a fight. And that's very intentional. The goal of the globalization of these sports in many ways is to extract the labor with no questions asked. American leagues sell these players on opportunity, but they Mm. also make it kind of clear to these players that they will not succeed in that sport if they don't make it to the United States. Mm. They're foreigners. Yeah, it's a catch-22. And that's also not even taking into account how difficult it is for foreign-born players to even be in the United States while they're trying to pursue their dreams to become a star athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting, that whole conflict between saying you won't succeed if you don't come with us, but we are only going to help you to a very certain extent. Yeah. I mean, if you're playing sports at the highest level, whether you're foreign-born or not, you're making you know a crap ton of money either way, but that doesn't exclude these foreign players from also still facing the remnants of what it means to be a colonial subject. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm also going to always say this in probably every podcast, but we <laughs> only hear about the winners. Mm-hmm. We do not hear about the people who didn't make it. And there's more of those. And the consequences are stark for all these you know, players in these baseball academies across different Latin American countries. You're expected to put so much into the game, You know, going back to the idea that there is no work-life balance in basketball. There is no work-life balance when you're trying to become a professional baseball player. So when these leagues are done training these guys the ones that don't make it a lot of times they don't have a lot to fall back on mm-hmm. well they also they're recruited so young because mm-hmm. you only have a certain period of time in your early tw- i would say early 20s but far earlier than that too in your teens that makes you um an in- an investment mm-hmm. yeah i mean they're they're corporate products in many ways they're imports to the united states and the idea is ingrained in their head that in order for them to be quote unquote successful to them to represent their communities to give pride on their communities they have to be wearing a professional baseball jersey and Mm -hmm. nothing else this really embodies at least from the perspective of someone like me who um majored in hispanic studies not saying that i'm a total authority on latin american Mm -hmm. affairs at all but i certainly you know, when approaching the subject of Hispanic studies, I tried to do it as sensitively as possible, knowing that the United States has had a huge stake, political stake, and influence in all of Latin America. But everything that we're talking about completely embodies our relationship with that area of the world. Um, And to put it very simply, the way that the U.S. views Latin America and certain parts of Latin America Mm -hmm. It's very exploitative, and hmm. this sort of feels similar. Yeah. I mean, to understand the legacy of colonialism, U.S. colonialism in different parts of Latin America, you can look at baseball. Not saying that sports are really a driver of these global political interests, these global national international relations, but they say and shed light on a lot of things about them. They say exactly the shortcuts NBA is taking to you know, maintain this relationship with China. They're saying it speaks largely to the idea what multinational corporations are doing, the shortcuts they're taking, whether it's Nike or McDonald's, to sell their products in China. In Latin America, it says what we're doing to continuously repress these populations and keep them poor by the way we exploit and extract and spit out Latin American baseball players. Sports are kind of built on top and are representative of all these global forces and I think ways that are understandable and translatable to all of us all us sports fans if we care to look at it mm-hmm. calling back on something that we were discussing earlier about how the u.s has this mindset that we are sort of the center of the universe and that people think about us all the time outside of our um outside of our turf mm-hmm. we should probably note that understanding diplomacy and international relations between foreign countries outside of the United States, um, sports still serves as a strong vehicle to conceptualize what's going on, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this isn't a distinctly U.S.-based phenomenon. I mean, it kind of is because most professional sports leagues are derived from the United States, baseball and basketball. They are American games, but in soccer and football as well, you have these systems of extraction and exploitation that are distinctly non-Western as well. Mm-hmm. I would I would maybe say that 
you know, other countries have sports that are huge, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, our friend um, Shaz is a huge lover of cricket, which is huge in both Great Britain and India and other places as well. Um, You know, we have to mention things like that. But soccer is... We can't even compare the influence of basketball or football or baseball to that of soccer. We can't even... I mean, it's interesting that we have all of these powerful sports leagues that have global influence, but it is still leagues miles behind the influence that soccer has on literally the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it is actually infiltrating the American market. Yeah. There's this built-in understanding that, I think maybe more than any other sport, that soccer is supposed to be politically symbolic. While maybe we deny that fact or we kind of hide it under our sports and American patriotism and ideas of exceptionalism, in soccer, there's this idea that you can forge international relationships through sport very distinctly. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And there are certain specific events that represent that, correct? Yeah. Like what, Jane? Uh, well, (laughs) (laughs) um, one of them would be when Diego Maradona had his hand of God goal. And actually, one of the later after that, um, one of the greatest goals of all time, where he went like basically the entire length of the soccer (laughs) field. Um, very memorable for Argentina. He was representing the Argentinian national team. Uh, they were playing at the time the British national team. They were playing England. Things were really high at the time because the Falklands War between those two nations had only ended four years prior. A certain political undertone to that match. I mean, there was a lot that was going on. It was, there's a lot of reasons why it's memorable, but that is certainly one of them. Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about how sports can kind of flare up and point to the problems in international relations, but... Sports can also be used as a way to create diplomacy and ease tensions between countries. In many ways, that hand of God goal match between England and Argentina was a symbolic end to the tension that was going on there. It was a reclamation of what had happened. Hmm. So many examples within the realm of soccer, but Mm -hmm. also just beyond, especially in the Olympics, that represent diplomacy between different nations. Um... Or honestly, hostile relations. One thing that comes mm. to mind is the football war that happened in 1969 between El Salvador and Honduras, which was a war that happened essentially because both of those countries were fighting to qualify for the 1970 FIFA World Cup. Mm-hmm. Or Yuna Kim, a Korean figure skater, beating her um, Japanese counterpart in some world competition. Uh, that was always a big deal because of the fraught relationship between those two nations. Um, But there are endless examples. Yeah, for sure. I mean, sports as diplomacy has been something that is not a new phenomenon in many ways. You have Richard Nixon with his ping-pong diplomacy and using the sport of ping-pong to kind of open up the U.S. to China relations. Or you have things like Didier Drogba's attempt to use the platform that came with qualifying for the FIFA World Cup to literally begin the end of a war in the Ivory Coast. You know, sports, in many ways, the globalization of sports predates the globalization caused by economic codependence, the globalization caused by neoliberalism, the globalization caused by just increased access and transportation to one another because 
sports have always been global. No matter where you are in the world, you play sports and you understand what playing sports means and you understand the competition. Mm -hmm. You understand, you know, what it means to kick the ball around. Mm -hmm. That's why we love it, right? Even though we can criticize it and critique everything endlessly, Mm -hmm. that's part of the reason why we keep coming back to this form of entertainment. I mean, it is just some of the best ways to understand and connect with people um, from domestically within the United States, but also beyond completely. Yeah, the medium is so malleable in many ways to all these various issues. If we're talking about economic exploitation in U.S. China, we're talking about economic exploitation that international, excuse me, that national countries are kind of throwing under the rug when it comes to the worker exploitation that's happening with Qatar right now to put mm-hmm. on the FIFA World right. Cup. The ways in which we can view these international relations through sports is endless and it's very powerful. To wrap up this episode of Spitballing, I'm going to be interrogating Mac about (laughs) things. Um, Things obviously related to sports, but Mac, I expect a very witty response. Yeah, I'm happy to maybe lean on some of my other abilities here rather than being deadpan (laughs) academic and serious as we just spent the last hour and change doing talking about you know sports and diplomacy and globalization but yeah let's have (laughs) let's do some fun light stuff now i think our viewers will appreciate it (laughs) yeah so okay my first question for you Mm -hmm. things you would find in bryce harper's google search history hair gel uh start (laughs) Um, I think he's looking, he's trying to buy a, a bong or two. I think Bryce Harper, like, where he needs to have a bong in every single city he Really? You to. think he does? Yeah, I think there's a certain type of kind of, like, slick-back-haired, fratty baseball player who does <laughs> not only drinks, but just likes to rip weed hits. Like, they're not just, like, like let me smoke weed, sit back, and think. They want to get, like, stoned out of their minds so they can, like, bang their heads against the wall and release all this, like... <laughs> inner tension they channel through baseball does that make sense yeah it does (laughs) it sounds like you might know a few people like that yeah i feel like i've like seen cody bellinger at every (laughs) tangentially frat party i've ever been to it's a certain it's a certain type of guy no no offense i mean i i I like i guess bryce harper's he's okay okay (laughs) so that's my answer bongs and hair gel is that cool yeah definitely okay i think you nailed it i think Maybe one day he'll respond to this and see if we're right. Okay, second one. Things Lonzo Ball would say on a first date. I'm a big baller, baby. (laughs) I hate that. (laughs) But I believe it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe not anymore after the whole, like, scandal with the embezzlement and he doesn't even wear the shoes anymore. Oh. So does he not think he's a big baller? (laughs) I feel like he might use, like, a date as, like, an outlet to shit on his dad. Like, just to air out some steam, you know? Mm. One of those guys who, when they are trying to hook up with a girl, they talk about how they have these deep-seated yeah. traumas, and he'll talk about it in relation to his dad. Yeah, classic, like, soft boy trauma manipulation. Mm, and how his dad tried to make him an industry plan. <laughs> yeah, and I think, like, even he must have some more inherent resentment you know maybe he's happy how well his brother Lamelo is playing the league but you know mm-hmm. Lonzo he was drafted a pick higher than Lamelo was and his career hasn't even 
panned out. You know, we're not excited about him anymore. We're excited about his little brother. So I think some family resentment might be placed on his dad because of that. <laughs> I mean, not to be a hater or anything, but to be fair, LaMelo was looking a thousand times better in his yeah. rookie season than Lonzo ever did. And you were a huge hater of LaMelo like three weeks ago, and I was like, Jane, the talent is undeniable. <laughs> well, I think he's using his strengths correctly. You mm-hmm. know, if you're 20% shooting from the three-point line, don't take those shots. And he's doing exactly that. He's assisting instead. And I also think he has the benefit of being the little brother where he's able, he's a celebrity in the same way Lonzo is a celebrity. He's mm-hmm. been able to see his brother kind of do it first, you know. Mm-hmm like the first sibling in your family that applies to college like they teach you how to do it after that so i think he's seen the mistakes maybe his brother has made that have kind of impacted his career in a negative way and he's known he's been able now to like overcorrect for to them well don't you think maybe the standard is completely different for lamello too like all he has to do is be better than his brother mm-hmm. which isn't like too high of a bar no it's honestly. not too high of a bar to be better than like a mid-tier like border starter on a you know, mid-tier team. Yeah, like right? an eighth seed team, not even. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, my yes. last thing. So just overall, oh. I feel like Lonzo probably has a lot of airing out to do for whoever he goes on a date with next. Ah, yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a little bit bad for whoever that is. Yeah, I mean, besides that, I think he'll say a ton of shit that's, like, super corny. <laughs> God. You know, like, with the rapper stuff, like, there's a lot... There's a lot of flexing going on. <laughs> I'm tempted to ask you more. Honestly, I'm tempted to ask you to ad-lib exactly what he would say, but we are close to the time. <laughs> Let's do that after the show. Yeah, we'll do it after the show. Anyway, last things. Things Shaq wishes he could say to Charles Barkley on TV, but he can't. You're a Republican. 